Well, today, as we dive back into the book of Luke, um, I just want to take a moment and celebrate how good the Lord is. You know, as we have been going through the series in the book of Luke, I've just been reminded what a beautiful story it is. Uh, we, we often jump ahead to our favorite parts, but as we kind of take our time slowly thinking through what the Lord has done, um, we were reminded to pause in his goodness. And I love, especially in the early chapters, there's so much that's about to happen that we like to just skip ahead to the part where Jesus is on the scene, the world is being changed. But here we are in, in these moments before he has begun his ministry in the book of Luke. And it's often much different than we like to think of. As we think of his ministry um, there's a lot of action going on. There's a lot of lives being changed. And here, as we look at the story of John the Baptist, there's unmet expectations. I think that's fair to say. And as we start this new year, sometimes the temptation is that we would like to have this massive plan for how our year is going to look. We're going to have new habits, we're going to have new goals. We, if you're like me, you may have a word of the year that you're kind of zoning into. And sometimes our year does not pan out the way that we think that it might. So what do we do when reality doesn't align with our expectations? That's kind of the big question of the day. I hope all of your goals are achieved. And <laughs> this is a year of massive uh, beauty and grace. But if there are unmet expectations, how do we respond? So this morning, I've called our message, When Advent Ends. Um, we've had these weeks leading up to Christmas that we call Advent. And the word Advent simply means arrival. So what we've done over the course of the past several Sundays leading up to Christmas, it's practicing, it's preparing for the arrival of Jesus, sort of like how a mom will prepare her home for the arrival of a new baby. For you and I, at this point in history, we're preparing for the arrival in, in kind of an odd way because Jesus has come, right? But he promises that he will come again. So our preparing is a, a reminder of what he has done and an expectation of what he will do in time. So as I was considering this idea of both having received promises and awaiting the fulfillment, I came across a friend's Facebook post that I, I felt that I just had to share with you all. Um, this friend, she had ordered one of those custom Christmas ornaments and it kind of cartoonized everyone in the family and had their names written on it. And she ordered it a little bit late, so when it arrived, they were super excited to get it, but it showed up a little bit different than they expected. Um, now, it looks lovely, you know, I, I would love to hang that on my tree. The problem is, that's not her family. Uh, she is not a part of the Wilburn family. In fact, she doesn't have a daughter, and that's not her dog's name either. So, <laughs> as she received it, it was this awesome, hilarious thing. They've gone around their home calling each other by the wrong names for the past week or two. Uh, but it didn't quite 
meet the expectations, right? What she had ordered was a little bit different. Now, as I said, it, it doesn't look bad, but it's not at all what they expected. And just like the ornament, we can trust that one day all will be made right. She's getting the correct ornament in time, right? Uh, one day everything will be made right. But in the moment, it's not quite like we anticipated. So what do we do when Advent ends? When the order arrives and reality doesn't meet the expectations? Uh, today, as we consider the life and ministry of John the Baptist, we're going to see how he experienced that same tension. That what he hoped for and what he received were far separated from one another. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 3, and we will begin in verse 1. We're going to split this up in a few sections today, so we'll read from verses 1 through 6 of Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Now, there are several things going on in these verses that I, I think it's important for us to be aware of. Uh, first, as Luke lists all of these different rulers and the regions that they are over, we need to read this in light of what Luke has already recorded. Now, remember, um, he's writing a historical narrative, so he's trying to communicate something specific. He's not just recording everything that he can uncover about the life and ministry of Jesus. He's telling a specific story so that his reader Theophilus and the early church and us today can learn and know that Jesus is who he says he is. So as he's writing this historical narrative, he's communicating something specific. And if you remember back to chapter 1, Mary, as she was told that she would give birth to Jesus, she had a song of praise as she marveled at the good news that she would give birth to the Messiah. And in her song, we see a glimpse of God's kingdom overpowering the kingdoms of the world. So let's look at this together. Uh, sorry, bump ahead a little bit. There we go. This is Luke 1, 52 and 53. Mary sings, He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. And continuing this line of thought, John's own father, Zechariah, had a similar expectation. When he prophesied after John's birth, he said in verses 68 through 71, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, 
because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. So why does Luke list all of these different rulers here in chapter 3? Well, he's showing us the reality of the situation. Uh, Just like Mary and Zechariah had anticipated this overturning of the worldly powers, as God's word came to John in the wilderness, he was carrying out his ministry with an expectation that this would be a turning point for the nation of Israel. So he began proclaiming the message that Isaiah had declared, uh, declared centuries before, a message preparing the way for the coming Savior. And as John prepares the way, you know, this isn't just a pavement and asphalt project. This is preparing the hearts of people to come along and be ready for the Savior. So John, he proclaims a message of repentance. And we'll dig into that more in just a moment. But however, as you and I and Theophilus and other early readers of Luke's gospel, we read this knowing what comes next in John's ministry. We know that John is going to be killed by these powers that are just listed. He's going to be arrested, he's going to be imprisoned, and he will be beheaded by these powers. And you and I, we know that the rulers of that time were wicked. They ran according to their own rules and desires. And we can simply open up the newspaper today and see that those evil worldly rulers are still on the throne. The names change, the the powers change with the decades, but by and large, those rulers are still on the throne, carrying out their own purposes. So the expectation of Mary and Zechariah and John and so many others was that the worldly elite would be overthrown. But the reality is that even worldlier leaders have been empowered. So what do we do when our expectations of this shift in power of godly leaders, when it doesn't become reality, what do we do? Well, in this instance, we need to consider where our hope is centered. Is our hope in earthly powers? Or is our hope in the king of all kings and the lord of all lords? Now that's not to say that Christians should totally disengage from the political arena. But there's a big difference in speaking into or attempting to influence the political world and trying to find our own status or our own area of power or authority by coming into the world of politics. And if it's on anything other than Jesus, we need to realign our priorities. And on top of that, if, if you know who God is, if you believe that he is true to his word, we can hold hope. Because although the expectations of Mary and Zechariah and John may have been for an immediate kingdom coming, God will bring it one day, but it will be on his timetable. So remind yourself that God is true to his word, and he will remain faithful, and his plan will be fulfilled. 
So let's continue reading in Luke chapter 3, picking up in verse 7. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then should we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He told him, don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. Now the people were waiting expectantly, and all of them were questioning in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I am is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Then, along with many other exhortations, he proclaimed good news to the people. Um, so as we dig into this section, um, not to get too technical, this is structured as what we call a, a chiasm or a chiastic structure. Um, so as we're reading this section, for it to make the most sense, we need to understand how it is structured. So you see a, a big X on the screen. Uh, that's essentially the shape of the structure. There's three portions at least. Uh, there's kind of an introduction. The B in the middle is the primary focus of the argument or the thought. And then on the other side, it's a reinforcement of that initial thought. So it's like A, B, A, but it's drawing our attention to the middle of this structure. So as we look at John's message here, um, not to get too focused on the structure, but through reading it according to this chiastic structure, we see verses seven through nine, John is warning the crowds of the coming judgment. He's reminding them to be prepared because judgment is coming. And then in verses 10 through 14, uh, John tells the different groups how to repent in order to be ready when the Messiah comes. And then in verses 15 through 17, we see the second section focusing on the coming judgment. And then verse 18 is a short summary. So as we focus in on John's message itself, it's important that we recognize just how countercultural this message is. You know, many were drawn to him to hear his message. Uh, the general public, the tax collectors, then the soldiers. And with each group, interestingly enough, John spoke about money. But his focus wasn't just on exchange of money or redistribution of wealth. Uh, there's a ma massive heart change that he's trying to point to here. Because 
a change in behavior needs to flow from a change of heart. And as we think of money, it's often a sign of where our heart is pointed. Uh, don't you find that to be true in your own life? The things that you love and enjoy, you invest most of your resources in. If you love hunting, you're going to spend money on hunting gear. If you love gaming, you're buying the newest systems and the downloadable content. If you love learning, you're buying books and documentaries, uh, continuing your education. If you love security, you're likely putting as much money as you can in savings or safe investments. But if you were to lay out a list of all of your expenses over the past 30 or 60 days, what story would your finances tell about where your heart is pointed? Uh, that's a, a good question for all of us to ask and answer. What would our money tell about where our heart is aligned? Now, make sure you understand that none of those things that I mentioned are bad, right? None of those are sinful in and of themselves. But if they have our hearts, if they have taken our primary focus, if they direct our behavior, they may have become a God in our lives. We need to be aware. And as John tells us, we need to repent. We need to turn. Because there are so many things vying for our attention these days. Some are worthwhile and valuable. But many are just distractions from what truly matters. And when these people came to John, many were looking for the easy way out. They were seeking an escape from judgment. They were trying to find how they could get away with what they wanted to do and still be on God's nice list, right? And John showed them something much better. He showed them a new decision leading to a new direction. And John told them to repent of those selfish pursuits so that they can be ready when the Messiah comes, bringing judgment. And you and I, we need to hear that message today as well. Repent. Stop what we're doing and turn the other direction. Stop heading down the path of destruction, whether that's rebellion against God through major sins or by simple selfishness. Stop that path, turn around, and follow Jesus. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our lives, turn the other way. Our sins, they have a way of snowballing. And one day we, we will find ourselves tempted to step into sin. And if we give in, if we allow it space in our hearts... It's going to roll downhill, and we won't like the end result. I recently had a friend share about a situation that he'd been walking through. Um, he was trying to find acceptance and security, and it ended up leading him to make some really terrible decisions. And the result of those decisions is he's now possibly going to lose his job, He's even threatened with the potential of jail time, and he is essentially losing his relationship with his son through a series of bad decisions that have snowballed. John is telling us, stop, repent, turn to Jesus and pursue him, because judgment will come. 
the consequences will catch up with us one day. So instead of just trying to avoid judgment, though, the better thing that we can do is pursue Jesus, be transformed by him. Now, the people came to John expecting to find salvation, to be freed from the consequences. But the reality was that John was preparing them for the better way of following Jesus, of pursuing him at many costs. Some, their own lives would be cost through this decision to follow Jesus. But it was worth it. It was better. John prepared their hearts. He realigned their motivations. And those of us who have received salvation through Jesus, we need to be reminded at times to do the same, to repent of our sins, to fend off temptation and turn back to Jesus. Though our salvation may not be on the line at that point, the best life is through following Jesus. And I'm, I'm reminded of Paul's own inner turmoil. In Romans 7, he described himself as a wicked, wretched man because he wanted to do good, but over and over again, he found himself pursuing the path of sin that leads to destruction. It leads to brokenness. And when we find ourselves in that place, repent. As we conclude this section today, verses 19 and 20. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things he had done, Herod added this to everything else. He locked up John in prison. Here we find ourselves more or less at the end of John's involvement in the story. That message of repentance that he proclaimed may have been popular with the people, but it wasn't a popular message when he was pointing the finger at the ruler, when he was showing those in charge their sins. And as we know, John was thrown in prison where he would eventually be killed. I want to jump forward a few chapters where we can clearly see John's expectations. This is Luke chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Then John's disciples told him about all these things, what Jesus had been doing. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, it's pretty clear that John's circumstances are not what he expected. Now, that's not to say that he had hardened his heart against God, but this is certainly not the way that he had pictured his life or his ministry ending. Now, I can't know exactly what John was expecting, but I think most of us, if we're honest, expect a life of faithfulness leading to reward not jail time ending with death, right? If we think we're following the Lord, part of us hopes for or expects blessings or reward. And that's not what John found. He found persecution leading to death. And if you remember Jesus' words when he found himself just hours from his own arrest leading to his violent and painful death, he prayed, Father, 
if you're willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So what do we do when the reality of our circumstances doesn't align with our expectations or hopes? What do we do? Whether it's wicked rulers or inner turmoil or circumstances far outside of what we wished for, what do we do when reality doesn't match our expectations? I think we have to start with one important question, and here it is. Was it our desires that we were pursuing, or was it God's? Were our hopes and our expectations centered around our will and desires, or God's will and his desires? Now, let's be honest. That's a really hard question to ask, but it's absolutely essential. When you find yourself anxious about your circumstances, consider if you thought that job or relationship or purchase or decision, whatever it was, did you pursue it because you thought that it would meet your needs or fill your desires? Or did you honestly follow Jesus into this valley of the shadow of death where you find yourself in confusion and darkness and despair? Those are the two options. Are you pursuing things of the flesh and finding yourself disappointed? Or are you following Jesus and finding yourself in a place of darkness? Just because we follow Jesus doesn't mean that everything will always turn out happy and fine and good. I'm sorry if that's what you are holding on to, but that's not what we're promised. However, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. We will have troubles in this world, but he has conquered, and he is with us. So, back to those two options. If we discern that our hopes were centered around our will, like John told all the people, we need to produce fruit consistent with repentance. We need to stop moving down this path of selfishness and personal pursuit. And we need to align our will with the Lord's. And it's the famous Jesus take the wheel, right? Hand it over, give it to him. We cannot finish this on our own. But the good news of the gospel is that there is grace. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus loves you. He's not mad at you. He hasn't left you or forsaken you. In fact, I read a beautiful quote from the book Gentle and Lowly that I want to read with you. Uh, the author writes, If you were part of Christ's own body, your sins evoke his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He takes part with you. That is, he's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. Did you hear that? He, he sides with you 
against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. Now, there are likely consequences from our decisions, and part of repentance is to accept the consequences and seek forgiveness and restoration where it's needed. If there's relational fallout in your life because of sin, that might mean that you need to own your part of the issue and ask to be forgiven. You may need to pursue financial repentance, and that might look like selling back the vehicle or the unwise purchase at a loss because it wasn't wise or God-honoring. Maybe an intellectual or emotional repentance could look like pursuing counseling or therapy to help you identify false perceptions and chart new paths forward. Physical repentance could look like kicking that habit. Ultimately, if you discern that the circumstances you find yourself in because of disobedience to the Father, if you find yourself in that place, it's time to get back on the narrow road. It's time to get back on the paths of righteousness. So repent, leave your mess behind, and pursue Jesus wholeheartedly. But what if, like John, you arrived at this place of darkness and uncertainty by legitimately following the Lord? What if you find yourself there? Well, if that's the case, you need to adjust your perspective and cling to Jesus, not circumstances. Paul wrote, in 1 Corinthians, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then when the Lord makes all things right, it will be like we are seeing face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now we can only see part of the picture. We don't understand why the Lord has allowed us to walk through these seasons of darkness or pain or turmoil. So instead of questioning him or throwing doubt on him, recognize our limitations, that we cannot see the full picture and cling to Jesus. We need to adjust our perspective by reminding ourselves that We are not the main character in this story. Our lives are important to the story. They help tell the story. But ultimately, our job is to point to Jesus. So if my suffering makes Jesus shine brighter, praise God. Let go of my circumstances and cling to him. Like John, we may not see the resolution We could possibly leave this world still unsure why God would allow us to walk through such pain or injustice. On this side of eternity, we may never learn why we have to go through those situations. But that doesn't change the fact that God is writing a beautiful story. He's weaving a tapestry across all of our stories, across all of history, that declares that the light will triumph over the darkness. God will make all sad things untrue. So as we come today, 
with Advent being over. Jesus has come, but he will return one final time. And as John proclaimed, judgment is coming. Either you will find yourself under the grace and the mercy of God by being washed by the blood of the Lamb, or you'll find yourself under the wrath and judgment of God, paying the debt yourself. There's nothing that you could do to earn forgiveness. Instead, you simply come to Jesus declaring that you are a sinner in need of his salvation. Recognizing that Jesus is God. He's God who came in the flesh, living a perfect life and dying the death that you and I deserve. He went to the tomb after being killed on the cross and he remained in the tomb for three days. But on the third day, he defeated the powers of sin and death when God raised him from the dead. And in doing so, he paved the way for all of us who trust in him to experience life and forgiveness. So although at the moment you may be in a place where you don't expect it, you didn't expect to be, it doesn't align with what you had planned, one day the advent will truly be over. The waiting will have ended and all the redeemed, the martyrs and the saints and all creation will say together these words from Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. It will be the end of Advent and all will be made right. And reality will be far better than we ever expected. Let's pray.